welcome back to the Lightly Literary Podcast, the only book club podcast that would never pawn off its most coveted items, especially a podcast microphone that records episodes by itself or editing software <laughs> that does all the leveling and editing by itself. I think, Amanda, we embrace that kind of automation, don't we? Uh, yes, please. <laughs> I mean, part of the joy of doing a podcast is, of course, doing the podcast. I would miss the conversation, mm-hmm. but you know... Then again, when you've got something that is willing to do all of the hard work for you, it's hard to say no. Yeah. It's hard to just give that away or trade it away for anything, really. Mm-hmm. Then that is the kind of desperation that you will find in today's book club. If you're unsure what we're talking about, that is because you have stumbled upon a book club episode. This, I mentioned, is the Lightly Literary Podcast. Today we'll be doing a deep dive, an analytical deep dive, on the second half of Norse mythology by Neil Gaiman. Um, in the podcast feed that you've encountered us in, you'll find part one posted up there and a book recommendation for the same work. Today we're just talking about, well, mostly the back half, but the entirety of that book as well, so all of it is fair game. Joining me as ever is podcast co-host Amanda. Hello, Amanda. Hello. And you can find us on social media. We're on Instagram and Facebook at The Lightly Literary Podcast, all one word, so find us there. And of course, as always, rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice. We would appreciate it. Otherwise, we're going to send our autonomous sword after you. I don't know. Should we start putting <laughs> threats in? I listened to a, um, there's a deep dive book club and TV episode, TV um, movie podcast I listened to called Binge Mode. And they, when they do their social media plugs, they do a threat with the, oh. when like, rate or review us or will blah, blah, blah. It's always very funny, you know? Maybe we should start mm-hmm. doing threats. I don't know if after today we'll have a good kind of, We'll have as good of meat for a threat because so much of this is violent. Yeah. There's flaming swords yeah. and spears and snakes that spit poison and everything. Mm-hmm. So anyway, we'll be discussing all of that today. As I <laughs> mentioned, this is a book club episode, which means we'll be discussing the entirety of Norse mythology by Neil Gaiman in detail. As I already mentioned, there's podcasts up if you want an introduction to that work or even just a recommendation on it. Today's purpose is a deep dive, and we'll be discussing the back half, so hopefully you're along for that ride. I chose this book on the prompt. Well, what was the prompt, Amanda? I just remember I chose the, it. Yeah, you did. Um, the prompt was to choose something that is a rewrite of something else. Not a ah. rewrite, but a, a retelling of it. But yes. That is better than the original. Yes, and I just a quick pitch on this in case you're not up to speed. I chose this because Neil Gaiman's super famous and pretty popular as well. Not my favorite fantastical author of fantastical stuff, but I think it's he's got solid stuff. I've liked some of his stuff. So I knew him, and I just generally don't like mythology, so I thought, why not give a modern author a chance to kind of retell and reinvigorate some myths? I'd never read this before, though, so I couldn't speak to the quality, compare, contrast, like... It's been a few years since I've read the Poetic Edda in college, so that is how we stumbled upon this work. And I think now at this point, Amanda, we're ready to jump into the book club. Are you prepared? I am ready. You've got your flaming sword in hand, then. Of course I do. Fantastic. Let's bring about Ragnarok and start this (laughs) podcast, then. We're going to begin with our normal segment for these part twos, and that is some highs and lows. Now that we have finished the entirety of the work, we like to just discuss what we thought were some high moments and some low moments. That can be interpreted however we want it to be interpreted. Amanda, why don't you begin? You can go either high or low to start. What do you got? Um, Sure. I'll start with um, a high, and that is that I enjoyed the parts of the story that related to natural phenomena. Um, oh, like, yeah. yeah, I think that Gaiman tells these stories really differently from other myths that I've encountered. And 
that the purpose of the story doesn't seem to be the explanation itself. It's just kind of like a detail that he includes. And so things like where we find out that, you know, Thor is the God of lightning. It doesn't, he doesn't go into a whole lot of detail about like, you know, why he's the God of lightning is just kind of like a thing. Whereas yeah. in other myths, it would be like, let me give you the entire backstory of why. And that's the only reason for this story. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. So I liked it in that we still get that information, which I think is like pretty important for a myth. Um, yes. But yeah. that it's, it's embedded within like a larger narrative. And yeah, so that's what I enjoyed. For, correct me if I'm wrong. There aren't there at least a couple of these myths that don't explain a natural phenomena. I think a lot of them do. That much is for sure. Yeah. But I just I guess I'm having a hard time remembering all of them doing that. That's why when they did it like Thor when he drinks some of the ocean to create the tides, <laughs> yeah. it stood out so well that was just a fascinating and really funny anecdote anyway, but that one stood out so much to me because at that point I thought this was one of the first ones I will remember. I mean, I'm sure they'd mentioned other explainers and I know that with the um blood mead in the first half there was kind of the explanation of bad storytelling or bad poetry, which was mm -hmm. funny, but I just, anyway, that one stood out so much to me because I couldn't really remember any others. Yeah, I think um, th it's not all of them that have that aspect. Yeah, and if they, yeah. if all of them do, then like it's more of like one-liners um, that would be in there. So right. yeah, but as far as the big ones, I think you hit those two. And then like when Loki writhes in pain from the the venom to make earthquakes. That's where earthquakes come from. And yeah. Yeah. Salmon nets, how we got salmon nets and why salmon have like thin, thinner tails and stuff like that. For yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I'll take on another high that relates to the one I just mentioned. I thought on 174 that, that myth or short story that had the revelation that the giant had just put them under illusions and was testing their might was like testing their abilities and powers the whole time Yeah, when they, when they believed that they had been failing at these things, but really they had been doing impossible tasks or whatever. Mm -hmm. I, I love that moment because, well, firstly, I think the fantastical nature of the payoff just paid off because you know drinking the ocean down outracing a thoughts kind of an abstract creative comparison i thought that, that all of that was just i guess it was fun really you know what i mean but yeah. i i think really what it revealed or what i enjoyed about that revelation was it was one of the only moments in these myths where the gods come off as just straight up powerful impressive you know yeah. be, beings of great if not omnipotence great power that need to be feared and respected i couldn't help but feel like the and this is maybe what makes norse mythology popular but i couldn't help but feel like the gods and goddesses were at times feeble and just kind of like in need throughout this collection they weren't the most capable they weren't the most able i guess at times they were quite strong but there there was a bit of helplessness here even when you look at their powerful tools those came from dwarves who were just making stuff anyway it's yeah. not like they it's like the gods had some kind of innate craft skill or something they, they just relied a lot on other people and also trickery lies and loki deception so at any rate on 174 when this is all unveiled and you know he says when you hit me with your hammer, Thor, while I pretended to sleep, I knew that even the lightest of your blows would have met my death. So I used my magic to take a mountain and put it invisibly between the hammer and my head. Look over there. Far away was a mountain in the shape of a saddle, with valleys plunging into it, three square-shaped valleys, the last one going deepest of all. 
That was the mountain I used, says said Utgard Loki. Those valleys are your blows. And then I like this follow-up. Thor said nothing, but his lips grew thin and his nostrils flared and his red beard prickled. It's just, you know, a little bit of his characteristic stubbornness kind of being gruff about it. And yeah. you know, he doesn't like being deceived and tricked. I that I thought that whole myth worked really well. It also felt pretty traditional in its structure, which I guess a lot of these do, frankly. But that one just, I felt like, had a fun payoff. And not at all times in this collection were the gods interesting or impressive or fun. And that one I felt like checked a lot of those boxes. So I enjoyed that one. I did too, and I, I think that you're right in that it it was it felt more traditional than uh, the other ones. Um, mm-hmm. Although the other ones, I mean, they do have a certain traditional elements to it. Um, but yeah, this yeah, one was enjoyable yeah. too, and also like Loki. Even though Loki's a part of the story, his um, wit and his cleverness and his trickery just aren't really played up at all at that point so it was an interesting different aspect of loki as well and he admits on that page too that he was out illusioned i mean he didn't put it that way that's not a word but that his his he was impressed by the illusions present and that he felt like he could maybe learn something from them or take something away from it so yeah it was nice to see them i mean at the the same time they're immensely powerful and imposing but at the same time loki was thinking wow they just and then they disappeared at the end and they're left in a vast like desert or empty space yeah so yeah there was some clear there was some powerful giant stuff happening there too any other highs you want to discuss i guess we can go highs first and then go lows yeah um i actually had three highs in, in one low but um, oh, okay. i'll go that's with fine my... <laughs> any <laughs> split high. any split's good um i said that the the pacing of the stories is really well done in that there's you know with myths there's just so much that you have to cover Um, so that you feel like you're just, you know, when we were reading in the little black classic series, we had to read a couple of myths and it just felt like you were just like dragging through some of the readings sometimes because you had so much lore to go through and just not a whole lot of actual like plot lines. Right. Um, but it doesn't feel like that with this book. And I, I, I really appreciated it. There's a lot of action. There's a lot of lore that is explored and explained, but not to the point of feeling like you're just getting lore dumped. Right. And then there's some descriptions as well that are really nicely done. And although there's not a whole lot of description of the action itself, I think that that's probably very purposefully done because like, I mean, a lot of this has to do with like straight up fighting and stuff. So if, if there were a whole lot of description of the fighting scenes, like it would be significantly longer as far as a read, but also like the for amount sure. of gore would be perhaps a turnoff for some people. Um, yeah. I'm going to segue that into one of my highs then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think, I think I know what your high is. Um, Did not turn me off. I was, I was <laughs> my attention peaked at that moment. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, one of the, like the goriest scene is on page 262, which is, I think the one that you're talking about, about yeah. Narfi being like, um, essentially eaten alive Disembowed. by his brother who's turned into, yeah. um, a wolf. But and that is the most gory scene, but it's also not it's not overly done and it's not like what you would expect um like a like yeah. Stephen King to write <laughs> in this scene, right? Yeah, that's so fair. Right. It's, that's a it's good not, contrast. Exactly, yeah. So there it's but the rest of the, the text isn't like that. There there's some description, but there's the the descriptions tend to be more of like the environment and the cold. A lot of the time he he really describes like how 
frozen and empty and cold the lands are and stuff. He's really good at creating that kind of environment, which I really enjoyed. Um, yeah, it's pretty desolate throughout. Yes. He's yeah. really good at describing the desolation of, yeah, of that world. The quote that I was going to give this as a high, so let's talk about the Loki torture scene yeah. and punishment. It says, Narfi was brave. This is the brother who's about to be eaten by the other brother who'd been transformed to a wolf. But it says, Narfi was brave. He did not scream, not even when the wolf had been his brother tor- that had been his brother tore him apart, ripping open his throat and spilling his guts onto the rock floor. The wolf that had been Vali howled once long and loudly through blood-soaked jaws. Then it sprang high over the heads of the gods and it ran off into the cave darkness and would not be seen in Asgard again, not until the end of everything. And then they tie Loki up and they do the the poison torture, which I was going to mention that too. Later it says um, Sigyn, I think it's Sigyn, Loki's wife. Sigyn? Uh, yeah, sure. We'll go Sigyn for now. <laughs> Loki's wife had watched as her husband was bound in the entrails of their son, and she said nothing. She wept silently to herself for the pain of her husband, for the death and dishonor of their sons. And then she, it kind of goes from there. Th- I mean, there's only literally one sentence in there about the violence, you know, it's, and it's a violent sentence to be sure, but it's certainly not leering and it's not gratuitous. And, it, right. you know, it's, it's an incredibly brutal punishment for sure. I will say at this point, and this could be maybe a low combination i was just sick of loki at some point he murdered somebody at dinner for no reason and then just was doing things i in the front half i kind of his trickery was more playful or something but something in the back half the way he was employing his deviousness it felt random and almost nihilistic at times and Uh so by the time i hit this myth i was just done i was like yeah they need to just they need to just get him out so that they can live in more peace and harmony with the world or something like it's it's not paying off anymore it's not benefiting anyone and it just felt you know what it felt like this is such a connection to 2020 but it felt so edge lordy internet commenter he felt like a troll it was just trolling yeah. and it was just kind of like what what is going on with you and i was just so irritated so yes it was brutal and in the term but you know by the I guess the confines and expectations of mythology, it wasn't, I mean, it's not, it's about as brutal as any other myth or whatever, but I just felt given his deviancies at that point and how much he was loathed, I, this scene being that detailed felt fitting given what had built up to it. So I, th- I thought narratively it fit and the fact that it had a bit more to do with the violence and it didn't let it go in a sentence, but spent paragraphs on it to me felt like the climax that had been earned. I don't know if that's me, just me personally being sick of him, but <laughs> yeah, it just it felt like it built to that for a reason. Almost every other myth do, has him betraying them or killing someone that they like. Yeah, so. he he was a real yeah piece of work. Um, especially towards yeah. the end, he he became more malicious rather than like just innocent trickery and just like messing with them. Yeah, it wasn't messing. It's not messing with someone to for no reason kill some cupbearer at a dinner just because they i don't even yeah there were just random ones in there i think yeah at some point it became kind of random well to be fair though thor also just like straight up killed a rando dwarf oh yeah like remember lit yeah <laughs> just like yeah. straight and up f- yeah and Sparta thor's methodology <laughs> is uh it, i mean it's a contrast of methodologies that's for sure yeah 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 that's true i think let me i'll transition right into another low because it involves loki as well I think on 195, there's a really odd Loki moment. And I'm not even going to read the quote because the summary will suffice. At some point, Thor tells him to make people laugh and entertain them. And he does it by tying a (laughs) rope around his genitals and then having a goat tug him around until he's, you know, in pain and it breaks. 
what an odd moment. I Tonally, it felt like from a different book. It also didn't feel like anything for a god of Loki's guile and maliciousness and what he ends up. And I guess maybe this moment is meant to be, oh, this set him down a path or something. But there's there's not really a cohesive motivation that goes throughout all of these. These are kind of standalone stories in some way. It doesn't feel like there's some narrative building in that regard. So I don't know if he held this as a resentment. I'll also point out, though, and again, this is why I felt characteristically odd for Loki. No one told him to do that. They just said, make them laugh. And that's the thing he thought of. Yeah. (laughs) So I just... It really felt silly and beneath him, and it didn't feel clever. It felt court jesterly to me, which maybe is a different, maybe it's some kind of bodily humor. There could be some Nordic thing happening here, some Norse, I, you know, there could be some cultural thing being here that are um, being exposed here that I don't understand. It, But it felt totally very weird to me, and it just didn't feel like his character quite, it didn't feel quite right. I don't know how you felt. Yeah, my notes actually at that part, I just wrote, what <laughs> like why yeah, because yeah, yeah i agree as far as like what he would find humorous i think is is the trickery and the cleverness and the wit right but he makes the comment beforehand that the gods are just so easily amused like it's his trickery and stuff like that it would be lost on them so the way that i read it is that like oh, okay yeah in order for him to get a laugh from these guys is he had to do like slapstick comedy because there's wonder, no they wouldn't understand they're, they're not yeah they're not up to to par with him as yeah, far they, as they like don't his, have his humor. intellectual acumen and wouldn't right. appreciate the more cunning clever things right like lying and dressing in drag i mean i guess yeah i don't I, we discussed this in part one i didn't find it, his cleverness to be astounding cleverness i guess yeah <laughs> it was you know overall all in all involved basically one level of lying and that was it not even not even a double cross mostly just a cross and that was it. <laughs> that's his cleverness <laughs> is i'm just gonna transform and lie to you again and that's it <laughs> yeah yeah anyway at any rate though but i i get what you mean so there are lines in there then when he set, sets that up i probably just underread it or misread it at that point or didn't you're right though there it probably did build up this idea that he was doing it as a critique against them that he mm-hmm. it's he was performing to their base ex expectations or something yeah yeah and and he does nurse the resentment of their reaction to it and stuff like that i think that's when we see a lot more after that story is when we see a lot more of the malicious loki yeah that's just there's no callbacks to that which perhaps the story structure here is the harm then but i don't even think it needs it you know these stories kind of are meant to stand on their own in some ways so i'm not asking for him to put in more sentences of you know, through lines, callbacks, motivate, developing motivations. And psych- like, I don't, you know, it's mythology. I don't need that. So it just, yeah, that moment was an odd one. How about low moments for you? I have one more, but go ahead and throw yours out there. Yeah. My, um, my low moment is something that I pointed out in the, in the first one, actually, it's just like the, the constant inconsistencies I still have, even after finishing this collection, I still have questions. Like, Oh yeah, especially like just like are all of the gods coming back? I mean, Balder came back and Kavasir came back after the they Kavasir were one. I thought was a low moment because there's a sentence in there that just says he came back as gods do. So it's right, kind of as gods do. Right, they die yeah. but they come back, and then Balder also returns. But mm-hmm. I'm wondering if that's because they died before Ragnarok, or I'm not a hundred percent sure what's. Yeah. happening there and yeah so i was i was questioning that um <laughs> yes, yes and 
it's like if so if there is no real lasting consequence to the gods themselves like i'm if if they are essentially immortal like they die but they come back then like yeah, why does ragnarok yeah. bother them in the first place well i think because that is the final that's the with the implication at the end with the kids i guess inheriting it all i suppose would be that that is the true for them the true ending and okay. that they they're allowed to cycle through but eventually their infinity has some kind of loop that ties it up or something. That's, yeah, that's how I kind of read it. But, and there is a line early in their collection. There's no, I'm going to go pull it. It was in part one. There is a line somewhere in there that says something like, and the God, I think it was when the, they drained his blood for mead. Wasn't that mm-hmm. also Kavasser? Yeah, that's Kavasser, yeah. I think in that same myth, they did say something like, eh, but he might come back. Or there, there was definitely an explicit reference earlier to that they will just come back as they can or as they do. So, right. yeah, I think that, you know, their immortal- immortality is well known. It Does that undercut the Balder one for you a bit then? Because of how they reacted? Yeah. He's coming back. I don't know. <laughs> we'll just wait. Well, yeah, and then <laughs> got, they, they like time. kill the brother who killed him, but they don't punish Loki for it. That also I was like, What? And I then they got they, yeah. Then yeah. they got even more pissed and like finally punished Loki after Loki insulted them all verbally because he was drunk right. and then killed like the servant and then they punish him. It's like what? <laughs> it's You're not clear gonna punish him for wanted... Balder? <laughs> If we wanted to do our academic, put on the academic goggles, it's clear that the blood oath sworn is some kind of has some kind of extreme cultural power and cachet because his sway over Odin is imposing because yeah. it's you know he does really egregious things and then just by referencing that to Odin at some point again I'm not going to pull the page for that but yeah they have that conversation at some point he says yeah. on you know, the way to not, the did the you not swear does. a blood oath to me yeah and so are we not blood brothers and that's enough to let him say just let it go yeah yeah Yeah. odin turns his eye away and says let him sit and drink with us okay any other inconsistencies stand out were those the most notable to you yeah that's i also have a question of like if uh what is that goddess's name erin it 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 iden iden okay she's in charge of the immortality apples like if she's dead and the apples are always with her, does that mean that the new gods are not immortal and they will age? What did Loki do with that? Well, I guess they'd come back anyway if they died, but what did they do with the, what did Loki do with the apples? Didn't he want them or did he throw them away? I don't really remember that, how it ended. They stay with Aiden the whole time. Oh, okay. But she's gone? I don't, I really don't remember how that Yeah, I think she's one one of the goddesses. (laughs) Like, all the gods and goddesses, like, died, right? Like, he doesn't necessarily mention Iden at the end but oh you mean like post Ragnarok I thought you meant at the end of the Iden myth oh I'm assuming there will just be a new god to take that up Hmm. or that they'll age and die and then maybe be reborn somehow but you're right I mean we are asking questions we're asking the questions of a fantasy novel written in the last 20 years you know (laughs) (laughs) we're not asking the questions of a myth from thousands of years ago yeah yeah so it's but that I think is a fair those are fair points for sure I have one more low I'll be quick about it though and because it's kind of a compliment too, I just want a Ragnarok novella. I thought that whole part was rushed and I enjoyed a lot of it too, though. It, it paid some things off. It made some references or illusions make sense. It also had some compelling character moments. And I thought some pretty brisk, but kind of fun or interesting, like when Odin died, it just kind of, he gets snapped up and is never seen. It. It's so yeah. aggressively, maybe even nihilistically brief or something in its presentation. But I just think, 
I when I look back at this collection, I think, man, dream edit for me would be cut out four of these and then dedicate the page count to Ragnarok so I can get just more of everything, I think. I don't know mm-hmm. if you felt that way. I really enjoyed Rack the the final chapter for a yeah. lot of reasons too. And and the the big one, which is my other high, and it's also related to actually the imaginary essay that um Sure, sure. That we'll I was gonna respond with for you. It's is that yeah. it, it ties the entire novel together for me. Let's get right to that. Then I'll just introduce the section, but we'll start it promptly. We'll move now to imaginary essays. This is the other part of the part two book club we like to do where each of us gives a prompt, an imaginary essay prompt to the other person that they prepare for and respond to. No, these essays, we have not written them. We just do outlines and hypotheticals. We talk through the prompt, how we'd respond to what we thought of it. It's just an analytical lens for us to look at the work. So yes, Amanda, your essay that I pose to you is as a structured and foreshadowed climax and even a little bit of denouement too. Ragnarok could not have been more blatant. It is the most clear climax of anything ever made. <laughs> it's yep. it's what everything builds to. Um, but is it interesting or effective? That's the question. Uh, what's your analysis of it? What did you think about it? And what worked and what didn't work? You can you can take it away. How do you respond? <laughs> gotcha. Um, so the first part of the question is, uh, yes, I found the ending very interesting and effective. Um, the foreshadowing of Ragnarok and the stories that lead up to this final chapter create a very cohesive narrative overall. All the stories somehow relate to or inform Ragnarok. There's always, like, not always, but a lot of the stories at the end mention specifically Ragnarok. And so there's a tie there to Ragnarok throughout the stories. And I think that Neil Gaiman was really smart in that the way that he structured this story is like, instead of just throwing a whole bunch of myths at us and not having like an overarching narrative, he, he very much had a narrative in mind, which made this even more readable than a lot yes. of other myths that we might encounter and that we have encountered um, in previous episodes. It's great to have it. Yeah. It really is. Um, And so this makes this collection of myths more readable, and it's not just lore dump, it's an actual story. It feels like you're reading an actual story. Mm -hmm. Um, The Ragnarok chapter also, like, when I finally read it, it just completely colors the way that I think about the text, like, as a whole. Like, thinking back on the other stories after reading Ragnarok... I'm like, okay, well, I see more clearly how this relates to this. And, and you're able to better uh, comprehend the, the ways that the stories are connected, which is really nice um, from a narrative perspective. Yeah. And um, I also liked it because, you know, typically myths are meant to give insights into nature, culture, belief systems, and all that stuff, right? Um, and while I got the culture and the nature in the other chapters, the philosophy of the myths was a bit more fragmented for me until the final chapter. Um, especially when yeah. the chess pieces at the very end and the return of Balder that, that really is such opened a up fascinating a framing for the ending too. How do you, how do you read it? I mean, it just, yeah, it's such a, they're playing with their parents. It, yeah. I don't know. It's such a bizarre and very clear way to end it. So yeah. What did you think of that? Yeah. So with the, the chess pieces, like it, I I sat down at the end and I was just like, okay, let me think about what that could possibly mean. And I, and I'm still formulating theories about it, but, um, I want to say that I had mentioned in the previous episode, the idea that like knowledge and wisdom, it seems to be a motif that keeps 
propping up it, copying, uh, it's just always there. But the yeah, way that it's yeah. treated in the stories is really interesting in that it seems like knowledge and wisdom are like almost punished, right? There's always a search for it and a need for yeah, it cost. and a desire for it, but there's a, either a cost, yes, or once you have it, you are somehow punished for having right. it, right? And so it's it's really interesting to me that that is in play. And then take into account the idea of destiny and fate, which Ragnarok is something that is is predestined to occur, right? And no amount of knowledge or wisdom can stop that, which is something that Odin, with all his wisdom and foresight, he tried to affect destiny. And in the end, he perhaps mm-hmm. even aided the end, you know, the end of the gods in a lot of ways by yeah. you know, the way that he treated Fenrir and stuff, right? And th- that they set Heimdall up with this. I mean, it's they had such yeah. foreknowledge of this. I think it was yeah. it's sort of everything in between those timeline moments that it makes them so confused and concerned. Yeah. But they, they clearly knew they gave him the Galler horn or whatever. Yeah, they, they, they were like, hey, wake. And they knew that they would be like asleep too when it right, would happen, right? Yeah. Right? <laughs> Um, so yeah, so that was really interesting. So then take that into, um, when you also look at the idea of like the chess pieces at the end with the knowledge versus fate and then chess pieces, it's interesting because chess requires a lot of knowledge and wisdom and strategy, right? Yeah, right. Um, but ultimately it's, it's not an open world game, right? There, there are only so many possibilities that can occur, right? It's true. It is finite. I mean, in right. our, if we want to apply, you know, 2021 reasoning to it and everything, mm-hmm. there's, I, I guess I've never done the math on this, and I, but I'm sure chess whizzes and like the grandmasters have at this point. I'm sure some computer scientists did it for fun. But yeah, it's, <laughs> it, it must be finite, right? At, at right. every moment, right? There's not, anyway, yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. It, so that's, you put it perfectly it's finite and so i think that that relates to uh with like ragnarok and even the gods right they're not necessarily maybe again questions (laughs) not necessarily immortal right but Mm -hmm. the point being um and this is like said on page 278 rebirth always follows death so there's that cyclical nature of everything too so it's if we think of life as like this finite thing, you just pick up the pieces again, whatever tragedy happens or whatever, you just pick it all up again and you can do it again and hope for a different right. outcome or whatever. Um, but I, I think that the final point there with the chess pieces, especially with Balder, who is the only surviving son of Odin, Question mark? Of Odin, um, maybe, maybe Volley or Vidi. Who's the leather shoe guy? Oh, yeah, that's guy? right, the, the shoe guy. <laughs> yeah, leather shoe man. <laughs> Talk about the, an oddity. That might be the weirdest single thing in the whole book. <laughs> I mean, you know, if you ignore all the talking creatures and animals and such. Yeah, yeah. So and, random. <laughs> so weird. Um, but I think that that's um, ultimately like Ragnarok, even though it's like this thing that ends the gods and is this terrible thing that happened ultimately it ends in hope with the idea of rebirth yeah 
I yeah, and I think the the fact that the gods are now forever kept is sort of immortalized in a way in the chessboard does read to me like a legacy piece, yeah. an ancestry piece, you know, having perhaps the kids will tell different tales and remember them in different ways, but they they do forever get to remember them in that in that setting, in that context of that game and mm-hmm. how they live their lives, the you know, strategies or lack thereof and the way they were living. And yeah, it felt very much like a legacy piece to me. So yeah. Interesting. And, and also the the statement the rebirth always follows death that also is a, a callback to actually the first chapter of the novel with okay yeah. with the with Odin and his brothers having to kill the giantess in order right. to create life so it's like even the novel itself is a cyclical story of here's the end but hey remember that beginning so yeah yeah for sure and it, it came from wasn't the first part about kind of juxtapositions of some kind or opposites? It was fire yeah. and cold yep. or something like that? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, it's playing with those grand sort of grand archetypes of mythology, that's for sure. Okay. Any other final thoughts on the Ragnarok chapter? No, I, I enjoyed you, it. You made it the whole way through without talking about Hela or Hell. What is she called in this one? Hell. Hell, yeah. Okay, Hell. Yeah, I'll get with to With one her. L. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, feel free to throw your essay my way and I'll do my best. Gotcha. So, um, there's plenty of action in this collection, but um, I'm just like curious about the characters because I, I love characterization. So, how did Gaiman, um, who, by the way, in the introduction noted that there, these stories that he collected are often either incomplete, lost, partially lost, missing, right? It's He's got a lot of information that he doesn't have access to. But how does he bring these characters to life? How did his characterizations work for you? How do they compare to characterizations of other mythological figures that you've encountered in your reading? And did it did you enjoy it? Yes. So the short answer is yes. And I think most of it, while subtle and at times repetitive, that also those two qualities can make for good character work, I think. Good character work is often subtle or and or repetitive. Uh, the way I'm taking this prompt is in a very specific direction, mm-hmm. and I'm trying to go into the most subtle aspects of the text because it does this collection, these myths, and I'm sure in the Norse tradition too, to be clear. I don't think this is Gaiman's work. I think this is the probably what's presented. It is dominant for Loki, Thor, and Odin. I think the only three characters who get an intro, right? Before this starts, he did a little yep. write-up. And so I'm going to ignore them completely. I think you can do interesting character reads into them. Maybe not for Odin, a person who seems to have achieved early in life and then completely stopped trying or caring. (laughs) (laughs) Just really is just lounging around, (laughs) maybe doing some feasts and then occasionally dispensing advice or judgments, but not really. Anyway, so yeah. But I think you could do readings of all those people and people have. I found them all kind of compelling, but because of their sort of brashness and the way that characterization again especially for loki for me who in the last final three or four myths just became almost an absurd caricature of some kind of joker troll figure or something um that absurdity level i think lended my reading to go back and want to revisit the women the most which these myths don't really foreground and they don't talk about them as much they're not the dominant players Mm -hmm. i guess the one who gets the the woman or goddess who gets the most attention is idun probably right right because she has a myth almost dedicated to her. It's really not. It's, it's Loki's myth, to be honest. But she is primary in that one. And in the rest of them, you get only snippets. But I'm going to dedicate my answer to them. Just the women of these. Because I think 
I don't know if my readings of any of the other ones would be interesting, frankly, but I think taken as a cohesive picture, women have a lot of interesting roles coming in and in and out of these. So that's what I'm going to talk about. Let's talk about Tyr first. Tyr, specifically, Tyr's a man. I, I think a god or giant, but it's Tyr's mother and grandmother. I think Tyr's a god, right? He's with, I think so. He he goes to, he goes with Thor from Asgard, so we'll call him a god for now. But anyway, it doesn't matter. I don't care about Tyr. His mother and grandmother show up in a myth, and to me, I found them the most compelling by far. They they had clear patience, perseverance, and dedication in the section where they showed up. I think. Look, you could level a very easy criticism here, which is these two women show up. They're giants, by the way, giantesses, I guess, whatever. But yeah. they, they show up in the sphere of domesticity, right? They're cooking, they're cleaning, they're preparing for the giant man to come home and everything. But the way they handle him and the way specifically the mother handles him on 215 just made me kind of laugh out loud. And it was also that role of women that they kind of got throughout this collection, which is to point out the absurdities of some of the gods and the men and giants in their midst. And so, you know, she notes, my husband is coming home, said, said the giantess. Oh, it is giantess. There you go. I hear his gentle footsteps in the distance. And then it says the rumbling became more distinct and seemed to be coming, um, coming rapidly closer. My husband is often bad tempered when he gets home, wrathful and grim of mind. He treats his guests badly. She warned them. Why don't you get under that kettle and stay there until he's cheerful enough for you to come out? And then he comes in brash, blustering, just insane, destroys his home. <laughs> and, you know, she has to correct him at some point. And he says, I am grim of mind and wrathful of spirit. So she predicted him perfectly in that case. and knew exactly <laughs> what he would say. And then at some point, Tyr's mother says, are you finished breaking things? And he just says, I suppose so, grudgingly. So I think, yeah, she just outweights him. She's more patient and knowing and predicts him perfectly. And it was very subtle, but I f found it kind of amusing. The grandmother, too, the many-headed, I think 900-headed, grand, the Hydra grandmother, yeah. I don't know, <laughs> the, the giantess with 900 heads. Yeah. Um, rough detail, by the way. I think there's a quote in there that says, each was uglier than the last one. Yeah, she's so not I, so an I, attractive lady. <laughs> so I don't know what the 900th head would look like, though. I can't imagine the sort of character simulator type in situation that would have to get us to that outcome but anyway <laughs> i think yeah just the the subtlety which with they dealt them and then also they i think it's the mother of the grandmother tells thor how to defeat him in the end so mm -hmm. even then they're it's not that they're working against him outright but they are poking fun at their own extremely brash annoying brusque husband and just even taking him down a peg helps him defeat him i enjoyed their presence i don't know what's your read on those two i, I have more but you know you can interject any no, thoughts I, on I, those two yeah, they. I really enjoyed um, Tears Mother, especially just like the handling. Yeah. Of of the of um Hymir, Hymir, Hymir. Yeah, as always, we pronounce names fast and loose here. Just <laughs> just commit, you know, is the thing. Just commit to one, and that's fine. <laughs> I'm just gonna call him Grumpy. No, um. Yeah, Grumpy Man. <laughs> Ornery yeah. old boy. <laughs> Yeah, and like the mother's love, and and the here again is like the the relationship is a bit murky. So, uh, Hymir is Tears' stepfather, but also, which maybe is why they dislike each other so much. Um, but it's it's interesting to, like, in in the I don't know if you read the very end of um, where he um, Gaiman 
writes down like kind of notes on each of the Briefly. stories that I he did. wrote. Yeah, I just glanced at him. Yeah. yeah, so it's like again, and I know you're focusing on the on the the females, but like Tears' parentage is also under question. Like there's conflicting stories about that. Oh, okay. So yeah, some say he's Odin's son, and some say no, he's a giant son. So he just went with. Chimera as the stepdad there. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, played a neutral. That's a compromise. Yeah, yeah I really enjoyed uh, Tyr's mother. I thought that she was... She's like the typical mom that you would expect from, like, Leave it to Beaver or something where they handle the, the dad, right? Right. When you're yeah. left with a, yeah, sort of an aggressive grumpy figure and in yeah. your home, you know, yeah. you just have to kind of work around them, and if not, yeah. kind of not dilute them. What's the word? De-escalate them almost. In yeah. A way. Mm-hmm. So we've got the kind of clever figures. Let's talk about Nana and Sagoon now, the sacrificial figures. These are dedicated women until the very end. Nana to the point of collapsing and dying at her husband, Baldur's funeral, and then is seen side by side in hell with him. And so I think, again, there's a ungenerous way to read that for sure. Women are tied to the man. They don't have any other roles. They have to do what they do, including die. Just, yep. <laughs> there's no point in going on, it seems, if, if the husband you're attached to is dead. I think that reading is perfectly fine. I have no issue with that. But I think the intensity of that sacrifice is worth noting, at least, that it's, mm-hmm. it is a sort of until death do us part mentality. And then, of course, Sagoon, we don't know what happens to her in Ragnarok. I mean, I guess everyone dies, so there you go. But we know that she, you know, protects Loki and sacrifices. She does the kind of ultimate in medical care and bedside manner until the very end. Like on 264, it talks about how she... Can, she drains the bowl that is continu- the poison that's continuously afflicting him. She drains that bowl for him and stays by his side the whole time. And it says... Sigun still waits beside Loki's head as she did then, staring at his beautiful, twisted face. The bowl she holds fills slowly, one drop at a time, but eventually, the poison fills the bowl to the brim. It is then and only then that Sigun turns away from Loki. She takes the bowl and pours the venom away, and while she is gone, the snake's poison falls into his face and into his eyes. He convulses then, jerks and judders, jolts and twists and writhes, so much that the whole earth shakes. So, that's earthquakes for you. But at any rate, I think... Her role, and you know, in both of these cases, it's women being constrained by what happened to the man they're married to. So I think all of that, you know, how these powerful, reckless figures afflict the people they love and afflict the people who are close to them. I, I all of those readings again are valid. So I think this is kind of them stepping in as just a soothing sort of balm. But I think it, when you have all these stories with these fickle gods who are petty, they're tricksters, they're sometimes so bored they just kill things or destroy or whatever, yeah. I, th- these dedicated moments of true tenderness and love sort of stood out. I just think it's too bad. I don't think the myths celebrate them. I don't know if you found this to be these details to be sort of celebratory. I think it plays them much more neutrally, I, I suppose, though they are tender. I Yeah, and so... You know, I, I I think it's keeping with the tradition. Again, I don't think Gaiman has manufactured this to sort of sideline these women or goddesses or something. But mm-hmm. yeah, any thoughts on Nana or Sagoon in those regards? They felt to me like the sacrificial figures of, of a sort. Yeah, I definitely agree with that, especially with um, Sagoon, where she's the wife of Loki. and But also, he cheated on her and had like other oh, kids. Yeah. And monster kids. Monster monster kids and um i was looking back at the chapter actually uh the children of loki chapter um where i was 
looking specifically at her relationship with Loki and she it says sometimes Loki would vanish for long periods and not return and then Sigun would look like she was expecting the very worst news of all oh, yeah. uh, but always yeah. Loki would come back to her looking shifty and guilty and also as if he were very proud of himself indeed and it, it even says that when they when Loki courted and married her she was like absolutely beautiful and she was so happy but then like after being married to him she's like miserable you know <laughs> like yeah, yeah. And, but she still has like the she feels bound to help him um in in his final torturous days there so despite the fact that also he's the reason that their kids got murdered so yeah i think as you've just established there are some classic talk about archetype work for myths there are some archetypal deadbeat dads or problematic dads in this <laughs> talk about the ultimate in exploring what an ineffective father may, may look like or how they may turn out yeah yeah depressing in a way i have one more woman who i'd like to discuss and that is hell of course the un, the unexplored let's say the underserved hell i this is the figure i went to to think how does the how do these myths as a collection deal with women who are imposing or powerful. I think she is the most clearly respected, even though it doesn't come out that directly. I think it could just be her implied sort of forces that she has at her command since she takes on the vast, vast majority of the dead. If Mm -hmm. you're, if you don't die nobly in battle, you go to her. So it's, you know, that's gotta be what 99% of all people ever. I think, I, I don't know the number, but that's, you know, to die in battle is one thing and also doesn't afflict that many people. And then also to die nobly, you can't die cowardly or randomly. Like it has to be, you did something heroic. So anyway, I think she comes off as pretty reasonable and a touch brusque, which is fine, pretty to the point and direct. I think, you know, if this is meant to be read as a sign, she does welcome Balder and his company, his family to her table and serves them. So I think culturally symbolically that's probably pretty promising she seems respectful at least and i don't know if she was appreciating boulder as much as the living were but she seems i don't know she seemed to understand his importance or something and maybe Mm -hmm. just that he was a god so i think she seemed respectful but yeah i for a figure that commands her power i would have wanted more page time for her especially then i forget it was either vidal or vidan or something but odin silent son the leather scrap guy yeah the fact that he got multiple paragraphs and random injections about something people when you throw away your leather scraps from your boot they go to him and then his his whole move is that he super stomps fenrir's head with his ultimate leather shoe i just thought that whole thing was so lame i mean in a story with autonomous weapons flaming swords spears and all these miracle things it's just okay so Fenrir got stomped by the super leather boot it just that felt really limp and kind of again it's odd which is fun the mythology stuff can be odd and fun but I I would swap that for more hell I think it's I don't know again if we want to read in this into an academic way or in a sort of analytical way yeah the fact that she is clearly the most powerful but gets sidelined the most there's not a ton to read into her character she is, again, seems super brusque and to the point. And so maybe that's why the the dead suit her. Is, it's so matter-of-fact and so clear-cut and everything. Mm-hmm. But I, just do more overall. Do more with her dual personalities, maybe. Maybe that re- is reflected in her appearance. Maybe not, though. You know, Maybe it's just because she lives in both worlds or something. But I just do more with her in total. I found that maybe to be the biggest letdown, at least with the other women I discussed. I think I have a pretty clear, strong reading. Hell, though, yeah, I don't know. It's She's clearly the most powerful, as I've said now. But also yeah more page time i think i don't know how you felt i know you actually i know you felt the same way kind of oh yeah 100 percent. and um my 
my wanting to read more about hell is like the the lost pages for me but i also wanted to point oh, out yeah. that yeah. um hell is also uh, other goddesses that seem to be pretty powerful um include freya who's like in she's part of two marry, stories right? yeah <laughs> but she seems to be way wiser than the others because she like right. straight up does not trust loki and like calls all the gods out and she's that's like you too. guys are dumb as hell <laughs> like yeah yeah that's a, yeah that's a, i really had not thought i what i should have done with this one and I should do this with the essays always. I didn't think about the first half that much, but that's a great poll. Dune too, I guess, is objectively very powerful, but the whole myth for her was just getting duped and tricked, and she had her doubts too. I think the great thing is basically all of the women here immediately face the gods with skepticism when they're presented mm-hmm. with plans and ideas, which always seems to be the right line of thinking. So, yeah, there's no, they don't seem naive or anything, but... The, the myths also don't serve them up any victories either. So yeah. it's, I don't think you could outrun that reading. It would be, it would be challenging to look at this and hold it up as some golden text of empowerment or something, just because they're either sidelined or despite the fun kind of cleverness and the characterization here and there, it would, yeah, they, they don't outrun any fail. Like it's, you know, they don't end up in positions of strength often. So they don't. And, and I'm wondering too, looking at the Ragnarok chapter, like, do we actually get any descriptions? We have descriptions of like the the male gods fighting, but even Hell doesn't get her moment. Then right, it yeah, the legions. She's not of mentioned dead. in Ragnarok except to yeah. her her legions of warriors. Yeah, Ragnarok novella. Okay, let's immediately switch to Lost Pages. I'll let you go first. This is we're gonna go outside of the text now. We like to end the second book club by looking beyond what we read a little bit and talking through some things. First, we'll start with the Lost Pages. This is when you and I each give an idea that we think could be developed into its own story or novel or whatever, or just something we felt was underexplored. Go ahead, kick it off. Like, what the hell? Exactly. Uh, Yeah. yeah. I just, I really want to read more about Hell and her domain. And I just, she's the most interesting character to me. And I don't fault Gaiman because perhaps he did not have enough information about her. Um, But if I, if he could just like, you know, write an entire just story, even like a short story would be fine about Hell and like what it was like for her because her, She's polite, right? Like in the first chapter that we see her, she's polite to them, to her captors. <laughs> she's polite yes. to them. She's yeah. firm. She's not like bent over in shame or anything like that. She meets their eyes. Like she's she's not going to look away, even though she knows that she doesn't look like a normal person. Right. And it's, right. she just, her characterization in that first chapter really gripped me because I was like, she seems like a very put together, well thought, person it shows up in the one i reference too when they go when he goes there to rescue balder that same yeah the same presentation yeah yeah exactly and she's um so when she shows up in that chapter as well yeah she's she's not vindictive or anything like that she's very respectful um she's just firm and and she's not you know uh she's not being unreasonable or anything like that so i just find her character really interesting especially compared to like the almost caricature like treatment of like Loki and Thor, especially when those two get together. Right. And she's just like a complete contrast to that. I just, I find her very interesting in a lot of ways. And then like, I was expecting her to show up in Ragnarok, but (laughs) 
the only thing in Ragnarok is like Loki led her legions of the dead. So yes, I was like, and all okay. the other factions and stuff. Right. So I was like, where is she at? Is she just like manning the the underworld right now? Like, is she is she just like taking in the influx of like all these dead people, just right, like right. greeting them? Is that what she's doing? Like, and if she is, like, did she have to create a whole new system of how she greets people? And like, I mean, even that could be an interesting like little side story of how she deals with. I mean, all of the people coming to her right. um, in oh, the yeah. underworld and stuff. Yeah, so I just, I don't know. I, I was, so many, I have so many questions about her life. So I know more about her. I'm my. I'm just going to tag in for my lost pages. It's just Ragnarok. I already mentioned this. I want yeah. the novella <laughs> version. I just want there. I we get the bits where Odin throws the spear, kind of fights with Fenrir for a bit, and then also there's the bit about Thor finally gets his revenge on Jormunger, the Midgard serpent, and has that moment, then gets, you know, melted by acid, which I thought was just strange. But it felt, I don't know, if there's a way for Thor to die, acid seems, because acid is often associated with, you know, subterfuge, trickery, spies, lying, kind of the not noble way to fight, right? The dishonorable fight. And so to have him just be melted by acid felt pretty fitting i guess for him to die that way yeah hammer can't save you there i suppose but i just thought there were more interesting players yeah i thought the fact that now granted the valkyries and valhalla talk about things that are propped up in pop culture that like got one sentence of reference in this 300 page work yeah barely reference i mean they go to valhalla for a quick minute they reference the valkyries never meet any never talk to any never do anything with those but i just thought we have the main fighting force is the undead versus Valhalla. That's kind of the whole thing is the undead are the normal, you know, the people presented on Loki's side being the less achieving, the not heroic types. And then who do the gods have? Basically, don't they just have the Valhalla dead? I mean, are there any, is there anyone else on their side that they mentioned? No, Maybe it's some other just, yeah, giant it's just factions Valhalla. or something. Yeah. And so I just expected more. I wanted more out of that. I just thought that Ragnarok in some of those moments, I want to know how those forces fight or what that battle is, what's hell doing. And so I thought the the only part of that Ragnarok that felt perfect to me was how Odin just disappeared so suddenly. (laughs) It was just sort of, he got swallowed and was never heard from again. It just felt like the way he flitted in and out of the text to leave in such a manner felt, I thought, pretty fitting. So, yeah. I liked Great. too that at the end, um, Loki, um, when he's like dying um, at the same time as Heimel, yeah, and yeah. Um, Loki's like, ha ha ha, I succeeded in destroying the gods, and Heimel's like, actually, right, <laughs> yeah, one yeah. one final way that he was not as clever as he had hoped, you know, right. I I liked that too. Always harsh to be undercut by your most prominent and you know notable characteristic at the very end yeah it does hurt yeah final twist okay well we've talked about our lost pages let's now jump to some expertise we like to end the second part of the book clubs always with some critical assistance if we can find it this is when we give quotes and passages and things from outside uh, criticism from newspapers magazines anything we can uh, find that relates to the work or discusses the work i'm gonna have you go first with the classic forewarning and addendum that every time we pull from the new yorker it just brings shame upon us and i feel (laughs) now granted this is an indication that that's a publication worth reading and subscribing to and whatever they're not paying us for this promotion but every time we've pulled from them i read the sentences and just 
vigorously nod my head and think, oh, fuck, that's what, why didn't I say it that way? <laughs> you know, it's just some of the descriptions are just sort of, I don't know, as good as the writing uh, of the original work itself at times, even one one could say. Anyway, so go ahead with your um, critical assistance, Amanda. I'm ready. Yeah. Um, so the first thing that I uh, pulled up from it. Okay, so it's from The New Yorker. The title is Neil Gaiman Reanimates the Norse Myths. And Loki, once again, is the most alluring character written by uh, Katie Waldman. Um, she writes, Gaiman brings rakish um, mischief and severe glamour to the Norse canon, both in terms of his public persona and his writing style. His Azir use contemporary diction, shut up Thor, and slip into Jack Kirby, Kirby rhythms. I have a bad feeling about this. Their conversations are arch, but their surroundings are raw and desolate. As in American Gods, which inspired a Savage Stylish TV series released in 2017, the brutality feels giddy, cartoonishly weightless, until suddenly it doesn't. So I pulled this particular quote because we talked a little bit on the last, last episode about the you specifically mentioned the contemporary diction of um, especially between yeah. Thor and Loki where Loki's just like always telling Thor to shut up. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it like, is quite noticeable too. Yeah. Yeah. So that is definitely game and style, I think. And then um, the, I have a bad feeling about this also made me think of a comment that you made last episode um, where you were like, it seems like the, the endings of these chapters and stuff is just like, the way that Thor is like, and the hammer smashes and there's no more life yeah. left in that person or whatever. Right, right. So I thought that was pretty fitting. But we also talked about in this episode the um, the desolation of the setting and how well Gaiman sets that up too. So we have kind of like almost two different styles of writing almost um, going into the reading, which I found really interesting. Yeah, that's for sure. I think the calling it arch but desolate is one of those, yeah, damn, you snap your fingers and wonder why you didn't say it that way, but that's exactly what it is. It's the there's kind of a bleakness and denialism to all of the occurrences in this one. It's, you know, it's got that aimlessness that gods are stuck with living so long, living forever, whatever. So it yeah, there's an odd it's just an odd juxtaposition of those things. It's so so well put, I thought in that review. Any other quotes from that one you want to share? I know you got some other ones pulled. Yeah, I'm going to skip down a little bit. <clears throat> um, and I'm and there's another one in in refusing to invoke any sort of immortality, the Icelandic cycle sinks into a strange stately gloom, neither human nor wholly transcendent. These gods do not symbolize eternal life. The comfort that they offer is a chillier one, that of seeing one's own death enacted on monumental terms. So I thought that was really interesting, especially in terms of um, once we read Ragnarok and our questions about like the mortality of the gods and the cycle of life and rebirth and, and death and everything. I thought that was a really interesting point to make about how human as well these gods really are, which is why they seem so petty and so different from the other gods that we've encountered in other mythologies. Um, they're very flawed. <laughs> That's for sure. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and a strange stately gloom, uh, just perfect. A str- it is a strange stately gloom. That's another one where I look at that and think, Yes, that's exactly how it feels. It's people <laughs> acting it's people acting formally but doing very informal and odd 
socially aggressive and sometimes incoherent things. And yeah, it feels like their their deeds are kind of gloomy and so, sometimes random and violent, but it's also it's God work still. So mm-hmm. yeah. And then um, one more quote, and this is just because we talk specifically about the chess pieces at the end of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, she writes, she's referencing um, Balder and the others coming back. Um, this yeah. is hardly a true resurrection. If anything, a chess metaphor quietly suggests that the wars and loves of the Asgardians were never more than a game, but a game is more bearable than a tragedy. So that's another way to, to look at it too, is like we were looking at it. I was looking at it as like a, a, an example of like how finite everything is and, and the idea of destiny versus knowledge and, and how you can't escape fate. And she's looking and the, the writer Waldman is looking at it as, um, Gaiman comparing the lives of the Asgardians to a game, like actually a game. Right. Yeah, no, I think there's so many ways to read that kind of metaphor at the end with the chess and the comparison, but yeah, I I suppose it is a tragedy, right? And Mm -hmm. if you're going to think of their lives as sort of playing out how they expected with maybe some tweaks in the middle, but ultimately having some kind of tragic conclusion i go back to the quote i don't think i don't know if you read this one just now but no you did it says having that the the comfort is seeing your death enacted on monumental terms right it does it does feel there's got to be a more coherent way to say it but you know we're working out on the pod that it does it does feel in this kind of nihilistic way that they're they have these godly ways of acting and doing, and they obviously are imbued with all the power and everything, but it does, there's a certain randomness to it all along the way, especially when you see it threaded through in a, this is, I wouldn't call this a novel, but it's it's cohesive at times, you know, it has things that come up again, and it has connections across the t- text. But yeah, and then to see it end in that way, and to see it never fully come together, and the you know the characters don't fully develop, and all that stuff, it feels it does feel weirdly stagnant. I think stately gloom. There's just something yeah. about that term that mm-hmm. feels really perfect to me. And when I when I saw that, that was the one that made me shake my head the most. Where I thought, yeah, that's exactly how most of these stories felt to me. Yeah, it's pretty fitting. Yeah, yeah. Any other thoughts on the New Yorker article? Uh, nope. It, it was a really good read. I. I I enjoy it. Yeah. anything from the New Yorker. I of course enjoy. <laughs> yes, they have a strong publication history of, uh, in terms of quality. No question about it. <laughs> I pulled a some quotes, some uh, an article. Sorry, from the Washington Post. It was a book review by Michael Deirda, and only a couple quotes to discuss. Nothing. When I saw yours, I read through them and thought those are phenomenal. I only got a couple to tag on here at the end for some outside assistance. And the quote is from, again, Michael Deirda, Neil Gaiman's suspenseful and surprising Norse mythology. A quote here says, To evoke such austere beauty, Neil Gaiman's Norse mythology employs a style that can be, at least initially, somewhat off-putting to an adult reader. Which is an interesting thing. We'll come back to that. Gaiman's sentences appear so simple and plain that one wonders if the book is actually intended for nine-year-olds. This combination of the faux naif and the melodramatic is then further complicated by the diction of the gods. They speak a bit like comic book superheroes. Thor is reminiscent of a slow-witted Hulk, while Loki, the charming trickster, the wry and handsome egotist, recalls the smart, alecky Iron Man as played in the films by Robert Downey Jr. A couple things about this quote. I think it's smart to invoke the Marvel films. You can't outrun it. They're so do- It's such a dominant <laughs> force in pop culture. 
why try and avoid it it's that's if anyone knows who thor is that's why sorry anyone on average if an average person in america knows who thor is that's why and so you know why not bring it down and make that comparison i would like to drill in on the adult reader slash made for nine-year-olds thing it's interesting right but isn't that just how myths isn't that just myths in general i mean what myths are is often roughly written, roughly translated works that are very old. So the style component isn't there. It's not like you're going to get the Epic of Gilgamesh is not James Joyce. Like you don't, right. you don't read it and look at it and think this is hyper dense and confusing. And I need to put on my adult thinking brain to comprehend this. It's just that it deals with themes and ideas that are quite large, maybe even transcendently so. And so, yeah, I don't, none of these sentences, I mean, Gaiman relies on, one sentence paragraph breaks all the time here to kind of move the action transition things. It's pretty brisk reading, but that's just mythology, right? I mean, you could of course give myths to a nine-year-old. A nine-year-old could read all of these. And this is something, you know, as teachers we deal with, you know, lexile wise, difficulty of the prose wise, of course they could read this. I don't know if they would find it interesting, enjoyable. I don't know if they do, you know, good or close analysis of it, but maybe they would. They'd probably enjoy parts. I don't know if they would enjoy Loki, being entombed by his own son's entrails or you know they could certainly yeah. read it <laughs> you know they would know the vocab words you know if they're doing their diligence they would know all the sight words and everything they would they've been if they've been educated up to that point they would they could read it i find oh gosh this i don't want to open up cans of worms though i tend to i think on the pod but <laughs> i it, it, this is not a dissimilar conversation that young adult fiction finds itself in often which is when do you find the style when do you when have you turned the stylistic knob down too much and the kind of thematic knobs up too high and there there is some kind of calibration here happening in this metaphor to music that i feel like yeah some critics just will never get on board with the with those knobs not in the right kind of presentation do you know what i mean or the right Right. not the right levels and so this is an intriguing test in that regard i suppose i don't i came out thinking this was not intended for nine-year-olds though it would be very readable by them by the way so is classic john steinbeck he is the notorious example in teaching circles of a child can read this but would they get anything out of it (laughs) right john steinbeck's writing level is not high it is notoriously that's uh, just thinking back to my you know education seminars and english seminars and whatever that's the classic hey here's something that a 10 year old should not read but oh yeah they could read this for sure no doubt they could understand the words on the page right anyway long digression just to say i i get it i think his style doesn't do i really thought that the myths would be more transformed and that perhaps he would really put in some stylistic tweaks and really amp some stuff up I think he played it pretty close to the myths, to be honest. I think these these felt mythic in style to me, except for some of the dialogue. But in the in the pacing, in the presentation, in the descriptions, all that stuff, it felt pretty myth-like to me. So please tag in. What do you think of this quote? Yeah, I think yes, the the vocabulary is very simplistic, and it's meant to be right. I mean, it comes from an yeah. oral tradition. It's meant to be accessible by right, everyone. Right. And I think that Gaiman tried to he didn't want to change the myths. He wanted to yeah. to collect them and to create a cohesive narr- narrative and to present 
something that he really loved. And he, I Mm -hmm. think, tried to stick as closely to traditional myth telling without compromising too much of his own style. And like the descriptions too, like there's, we enjoyed a lot of the descriptions and I really enjoyed the descriptions of the environment. And that's something that you don't get in myths either. Like there are definitely pieces in there that he, you can definitely tell were him, um, were Gaiman rather than just like the, the traditional myth. So I, I think that I am a lot more forgiving as far as like the apparent simplicity of the text um, just because I think that he was trying to stick with the, the general method that myths are told, but I can appreciate how he made it way more enjoyable with injections of his own style through dialogue and through descriptions. Yeah. I don't know. This is where uh, we reached some kind of natural endpoint because we didn't study them before reading this and my I'm 10 years out from having thought about these in any meaningful way. So there's all that. But yeah, we do bump up against this wall naturally of just thinking, well, I wonder how much he did do to it or didn't do. Yeah. I know that taking if I read these cold and I pretty much did right like we didn't do any background before picking this up. Yeah, I these didn't. felt like <laughs> myths to me. They had the rhythm and cadence of a myth. They taught me things. They had yes contemporary diction in them for sure well especially in the dialogue and i felt but i felt like the descriptions were never indulgent or grotesque and yeah certainly not written to the point of in, incredible complexity depth or a confusion or something it's not like you're going to have to read 20 symbols and you know cross configure them or however you want to phrase it to get you don't have to have your lit degree ready to roll to right. read these at all and i think you know, ne- neither with regular myths. I mean, you pick up, I don't know why I keep saying ep- Epic of Gilgamesh Day, but I've got that on the shelf. Maybe that's why. But yeah, you go pick that up. Like, of course, there are a million anecdote an- annotations and footnotes to it you could know. I mean, academics have poured over it. So yes, it's all there. But if you read the story cold, it's just going to be the happenings of powerful people presented simply with maybe some odd numbers thrown in there that you can't interpret. And that's what the, <laughs> the scholars will tell you why there's nine doors or seven, you know, whatever it's Bible stuff too. Yeah. I don't know. I, that quote felt oddly, I guess, I don't know. It just, it's not what I would have thought. If you know, you're going into myths, I, it felt like odd criticism to me. Yeah. Any nine-year-old could read a translated myth is what I'm saying. They could yeah. comprehend it. They doesn't mean they could engage with it or analyze it or really think about it much. Any nine-year-old could read the Epic of Gilgamesh is what I'm saying. Yeah. So, yeah, not an not unfair criticism, but an odd one for me anyway, coming into coming and dealing with mythology. Final quote, brief one here. While Neil Gaiman's Norse mythology transmutes the tales of ancient Scandinavia into expertly paced short stories for the 21st century, he gives a contrast that the, a woman Caroline Larrington's The Norse Myths offers a wide-ranging guide to those gods in their world. I think he's just trying to point out that there are other academic sources that are readable and give more of the culture and history context, all that. That's all well and good. This is total fiction. This is him writing short stories. The only thing I want to focus on in that quote is that he called them short stories. That's how they felt to me too. This is like a short story collection to me that has, again, some through lines. And if Ragnarok had maybe been more played up, I could I could maybe call this a novel. Maybe. That would stretch the definition in my mind anyway for what I expect out of a novel. But I think it just reads like a short story collection that will make you wonder things and think, huh, I wonder, you know, what's, oh, what's that myth about? Or, you know, oh, is that, I wonder how accurate that is and where'd that come from? So yeah, 
yeah, the short story collection, I think, feels like a good way to describe this. I'm not sure where you land. I think it's a little bit more, for me, it's um, more than just a short story collection because I I think that each of the stories was purposefully uh, picked out in order to connect it to Ragnarok and the way that he wrote the stories were ways to connect to Ragnarok. So it's a a bit more cohesive for me than just a short story collection. Um, which there is a term for that where it's, they're short stories, but they have an overarching theme. Um, Oh, okay. I didn't bother. Ohio is an example of one, but right. um, It's sort of like, um, Oh shoot. Like the house on mango street is right. I taught that book. Yeah, it's sort of like vignettes, I guess. I, we call those vignettes. I don't. There might be a, wor- a name for a work that is a collection of related vignettes or connected vignettes, but that's what we would call it. Yeah, there's got to be a term for that. Anyway, there is. I took one of my classes for my master's degree was that, like the idea of like these short stories that have the the theme. Okay. That connects them all. Whatever that term is, we want it, and it's accurate. I agree. Yeah, short story. I guess I was thinking short story collection because all of these, except for Ragnarok, and then there's two. One of them goes right from Baldur's death to after that, chasing Loki and punishing him. Mm -hmm. Those are the only two that require each other, although the first one doesn't require the second, and then Ragnarok requires them all. But I think you could read any of these cold. To me, anyway. To my recollection, you could pick any of them up and just kind of nod along. Yeah. So, yeah, no, I thought I, I enjoyed that description. I, I thought that's how I fit or not how I fit, how I felt about it by the end, how it fit into my mind. But no, totally. There's got to be a more precise word. Yeah. Why would we know it, Amanda? We don't have like a literature <laughs> podcast or anything. I mean, <laughs> it's not like we're, you know, we're not experts or anything here. What do we know? All right. Well, any I'll think final... of it one day. <laughs> yeah, and that's fine. We didn't research in advance, people. That's the casual nature of the pod. Any final <laughs> thoughts on Norse mythology by Neil Gaiman? What's the final thought here? Um, nothing. I, I enjoyed it. Surprisingly, okay. <laughs> overall enjoy a uh, surprise enjoyment. Yeah, I. Me too. I think it didn't change my position on Gaiman at all. Which I think of, I think of him as kind of a shrug slash. I really liked Graveyard Book, but at this point, read it 15 years ago and don't. I don't. <laughs> I don't know what I liked about it. I just remember thinking <laughs> I like that book. And then, yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't. I, I've enjoyed him, but he's he's just so super famous that it's that was part of my outright motivation to pick this. Is he's just one of those big literary names at this point for yeah. you know for whatever reasons. Anyway, okay. We've been the Lightly Literary Podcast. As I said before, follow us on Facebook and Instagram. That's our name there, one word, the Lightly Literary Podcast. Rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice, please and thank you, or we're going to send Jormundur, the Midgard serpent (laughs) after you, this poison sax. I guess that's as good of a threat as I can muster now. We have other books coming up. If you've made it this far, you might be wondering what we've got on the horizon. The next three books that we are going to cover in order are The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo by Taylor Jenkins Reid, The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison, and Native Speaker by Chang Ray Lee. So I'm not going to describe those anymore here. Just keep an eye on the feed. We will do our normal cadence of book recommendations followed by book clubs. So if you're intrigued by those, please join us again. And as always... We'll see you between the pages.